the early days of the church, in the first hundred years of so, or so of the Christian way, there were a lot of rumors about Christians floating about the Roman Empire. A lot of stuff going on on the Roman Twitter. <laughs> Those rumors were captured historically through the dialogue Octavius by Marcus Minucius Felix around 197 of the Common Era. This is a classic summer read. It actually is kind of about a summer vacation of sorts. Octavius and two of his friends go to Ostia, the port there close near Rome. They're on a beach and on a way for a holiday, hanging out together. Three people from disparate backgrounds of sorts, different professions and different traditions. It chronicles Octavius, and who is a Christian lawyer, and pagan Cecilius in the town uh, out there on the beach together, and it says what the two of the two of those people thought about one another. They walk around the city, they walk through the beaches, and they talk about what their traditions were doing and what they had to say about this. In the midst of that, we see what Cecilius says. He voices those rumors that are going around. Rumors like, Christians are unpatriotic. They don't do the same things that the rest of us do. They don't have those beautiful hats. <laughs> They were accused of being atheists. Isn't that kind of funny that Christians were accused of being atheists? Then the notion was that they didn't believe in all the gods. There's a, at one point in this dialogue, they're walking along and there's, there's kind of a random, random god. And, and Cecilius stops and get, pays tribute to it. And uh, Octavius does not. And so this is a, a, a sign that he, he was an atheist. He wouldn't follow the gods. Another popular rumor that went around about Christians was that they engaged in incest because they said that they loved one another. They loved their brothers and sisters. That one's pretty easy for, uh, <laughs> for Octavius to clear up pretty quickly. But people spread these rumors around in the same way that today we spread rumors about Mormons being polygamous or Scientologists being normal. <laughs> the biggest rumor about Christians back in the day, the biggest assumption, was that of cannibalism. People thought that Christians were cannibals. <laughs> does make sense, right? Christians talk of eating the flesh and blood of Jesus. Now, the rumor was even worse than that. The rumor was that Christians ate babies. Somehow people thought that they ate their own babies, uh, which was not really clear how that came up. But you could see where the baby thing comes from. Here's Jesus, you know, who appears as a baby. Maybe he was just kind of misunderstood on the outside. But in general, these rumors remind us of something that we take for granted. 
What Jesus is saying in today's gospel reading is weird. It is really weird. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Let's be clear. That sounds like cannibalism. It sounds pretty weird. It sounds like Jesus is saying, don't take this figuratively. I literally want you to eat of my body. Here we are, four weeks into this bread of life discourse in John. We've read about Jesus feeding thousands. We've heard how Jesus is the manna from heaven and how those who eat of Jesus will never go hungry. And this is the point where I need to stop Think about Tom Waits. Does anybody, everybody, anybody listen to Tom Waits out there? Or familiar with who he is? The kind of the weird... Yes, thank you. Have you ever heard the song Chocolate Jesus? Well, you'll hear it later today. It's a, it's a poignant, poignant song uh, in which Tom Waits talks about consuming a chocolate Jesus as his way of internalizing uh, the Christian way. And it's a healthy criticism of how we tend to consume and commodify religion. But the point is that this week Jesus is emphasizing something different about the nature of how we live into this Christian life. He is saying, You are what you eat. I've shared that story in here before about how my dad likes to talk about his best friend who told his kids, you are what you eat, a few minutes after eating a hostess ding-dong. My dad loves that story. (laughs) It's trite, but it's true. What we eat forms our bodies. Our body is composed of the nutrients we get from our food. And what we do with our bodies in general has a big impact on our spiritual well-being. I think many of us are aware of that. Many of us have come into this very room to practice yoga, to do various things involving our bodies that change who we are and change how we feel about our daily lives. One of the things that we offer in this room is a variety of mindfulness practices. Mindfulness practices that we know help change our rhythms, help change the way we breathe, help change who we are. In 2011, Dr. Sarah Lazar at Harvard did a study that demonstrated that eight weeks of mindfulness-based stress reduction resulted in increased cortical thickness in the hippocampus, which governs learning and memory, and in various parts of the brain that regulate emotion. At the same time, those MBSR courses, those mindfulness 
based stress reduction courses resulted in decreased cell volume in the amygdala, which is responsible for fear, anxiety, and stress. Just eight weeks of simple practice changed people's brains for the better. We know some of this. We know it because here at St. Mike's we have our surfing and spirituality. It's not an accident that we get out into the world, out into the nature, out into the beauty that surrounds us and allow that to transform who we are. In his groundbreaking book, The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel van der Kolk writes about how our experiences become lodged in our bodies. He writes this book after decades of work with soldiers and people who suffer from PTSD. He says, traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded with visceral warning signs. In an attempt to control these processes, they often become expert at ignoring their own feelings. They learn to hide from themselves. As I read that this past week, I couldn't help but think of the victims of abuse by clergy in Pennsylvania that came out this week. It's been in the press. You guys have seen this. You've heard about it. It's such a tragedy. More than 300 predator priests abused more than 1,000 children in six Pennsylvania dioceses. It is heartbreaking. I cannot imagine the pain and sorrow that those victims feel. And I know that there is healing that needs to happen. I know there's a need for truth-telling, a need for true change, a need for true wisdom. This morning we read from Proverbs a portion that you might have skimmed over this notion of wisdom personified. It's a beautiful, beautiful narrative that comes up again and again and again in both the Hebrew text and the Greek text, this notion of wisdom, wisdom which in Greek is known as Sophia. Sophia was a philosophical term. Sophia was the embodiment of wisdom and personified. This is something that went through various traditions in the ancient world. And it was something that was prominent in the early Christian church. In fact, it was Sophia that led to the, the notion of logos that we talk about here. The Sophia is, is Jesus 
the, the Christ part of Jesus. This is, is the, the divine aspect of Sophia. Such, some of you have probably been to Istanbul and, and have been to, do you remember going to Hagia Sophia? It's, we say Hagia Sophia, but you could also, that's how it's, the pronunciation has changed over the year. But if, if you write it out in Greek, it's Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom. This beautiful church at the, in the, at the capital of Christianity at the time, this gorgeous place, one of the more, most beautiful places of worship in the entire world, is named for Sophia, Lady Wisdom. It is gorgeous. If you haven't been, I highly recommend going to check it out. But here, Sophia, wisdom, says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. It is an invitation to change yourself, change your body and your being by eating the food of wisdom. You are what you eat. What we do with our bodies makes a huge difference. Not that it matters how able-bodied or attractive or accomplished we are with or in our bodies, but it matters what we do with what we have. It matters how we feed ourselves. Many of you have likely heard the story of the two wolves. Do you remember this? Have you heard this? It's an old story that has been attributed to everyone from Billy Graham to Lenape and Cherokee native peoples. The story goes like this. There's an elderly man talking to his grandson. He says, Grandson, there are two wolves inside of me. One wolf is kind and generous and patient. The other wolf is mean, selfish, greedy, and violent. The two wolves are constantly fighting within me. The grandson asks, who will win? And the grandfather says, the one I feed. It matters what we eat. It matters what we ingest. It matters what we process. So eat Christ. Eat the divine. Fill yourself with God. Eat of the one who teaches us to love endlessly. Eat of the one whose body dies in his resurrection, who is in his resurrected, who is so bound to the eternal love that it transforms death. Eat of forgiveness. Eat wisdom. Chew on eternal love. Consume unconditional love and sacrifice until it shapes your being and becomes who you are. Spend your time in love. 
Kiss your children, pet your dog, hug your friends, eat together, drink together, love truly and well. Because it can change the world. Eat Christ. Eat wisdom. Be filled with God.